0: strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson.
1: Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Bobby Umar is one of Inc Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers, a five-time TEDx speaker and digital influencer with over 650,000 followers, which that number is even higher now. He's a recognized thought leader in authentic networking, personal branding, and digital marketing. He's been named the second best business coach, the fourth best leadership influencer, according to Cred, and a top seven networking guru to follow. A fiercely proud and committed father, Bobby is passionate about diversity diversity. Equity and entrepreneurship, Bobby. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been a long time coming, and uh, I think we're going to have a tremendous conversation. So, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I'm excited, Marcus. Let's get into it. I found you in 2016 with that first interview that we were discussing with the Art of Charm. Connected to you on LinkedIn from in 2017, and have followed your work ever since. It's it's so interesting how much changes. Uh, LinkedIn has changed a lot in the last. Seven, six or seven years, society has changed a tremendous amount as well. And we see now that everybody is trying to find this authentic voice within themselves. But sometimes it's very hard when there's so much going on around us, when the world is vying for our attention, when algorithms are trying to influence us in those capacities. How are you still able to remain true to your authentic voice? And how would you coach others to find it if they haven't yet?
2: Well, I think the thing I, I'm always thinking about is my target audience. I think about my why statement, the people that I serve. So my why statement is there are a lot stuck or unfulfilled leaders. And what I mean by that is everywhere I go, I mean, people who feel lost in their career or stuck in their job or unfulfilled relationships. And so when I think about those people, I think of my parents. I think of my children. That's a dad. I think of my clients. I think of my community. I think of social media people. Even the people who are in pain or projecting or even saying things that I disagree with, I'm here to help those folks. So that why statement keeps me very focused on what I'm trying to like, wake up every day. And you know, as soon as I get the kids off of school, I'm already thinking about my purpose and my why. And I find that's the way to help me stay focused and purposeful with whatever I'm doing, whether I'm putting content up there, whether I'm engaging somebody, whether I'm on a call like
1: this with you. I try to be mindful of that so that I can be at most service. Yeah, and I love that you look at your children and then that helps you understand that why, reinforces the why, and then it even gives you an understanding of of the potential of legacy as well.
2: Absolutely, I mean, they are constantly reminding me of my greatest legacy and story of my life, which is them, what they're doing. They're now teenagers and so they're getting close to adulthood and it's pretty soon they'll leave the nest and I'm thinking about what that means and what what it looks like and how I can best serve them. In fact, it's the, it's the primary thing that I really want to... When I think of legacy, that's the primary thing. What will my kids do? Will they be global, productive citizens of the world and create the impact and maybe do that for others as well? Uh, that's the thing that I fully invest in trying to help them get to that point where they feel really good and happy and uh, doing
1: what they want to do. And There's no greater purpose for me than uh, making sure my kids are fulfilled. Well, you also talk about legacy because we, because we're looking into the future with our children. We look at the present obviously with our work, but your father recently had an 80th birthday and that helps you reflect in the other direction of legacy. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, thought, I try to think about, you know, he turned 80 and I'm very mindful of less years than like ahead of him. And that definitely makes me think about what, how do I wanna spend my time with him in the next a little bit? But then I also looked at the impact of what he's had over the last, you know, 50 plus years of my life Mm-hmm. as well as before that, and just seeing how stories, how a story and journey has gone gone across. I did a post on LinkedIn where I shared all this, uh, what I saw in terms of what's important. And I think that's something we should all be thinking about, and most of us don't think about that. We don't think about, we often think about what are we doing now? What am I doing next year? You know, what am I doing in, in two or three years? We don't think about what I want my legacy to be, and kind of reverse engineer backwards, because when I'm 80 and I'm sitting on a porch in my rocking chair or whatever I'm doing or the sober or my dad was, like, what do I want to see that I've done? Will it be that, oh, I worked for this company and I worked 80 hours a week and I made them millions and millions of dollars and that's my impact? Or is it something else? And with my dad, the, the number one thing he wanted, uh, you know, first birthday, what do you want? He wanted to go out for dinner with everybody. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're all there that, the, you know, our, our our group of 23 from his kids, their kids, and a couple of them are married now. You know that that's that's the that's the clan that the Omar clan of uh, twenty three people. That's what we want, and I, I totally get that. I mean, I'm what do I want to do for Father's Day? I want to hang out with my kids. Like uh, yes. let's let, let, let just let's just hang out, do something fun, do something nice. So uh, it, it gave me a lot of food for thought of what are the different aspects that are important. I mean, and I realized things like you know, work is work is not as important as the other things, uh, community impact, earth impact family, friends, the memories, all those things. The biggest thing my dad did was that he was the first one to come to Canada from Pakistan. Mm. And he sponsored and brought in tons of people, all my aunts, uncles, cousins. Like, I think he's just, and now they're all here. And I think he's responsible for like 200 plus people uh, being able to immigrate to Canada since the 70s. I think that to me is, that's legacy, man.
1: Really, because those are people that are making impact, people that that is a very large, it's not even a ripple at that point. It's it's a wave. It's like a tsunami of positivity he created. Yeah, exactly. That's tremendous. So your kids are in their teens now, but you started your journey and you didn't have the kids as of yet, correct?
2: Yeah, so you mean it of my business journey? Yeah, is that a change?
1: All of them, whichever I, journey. You know, you... My,
2: my my old journey is a long journey. I was journey. gonna you know, say <laughs> I, I I had I had kids late. I mean, I, I my my kids were born when I was 30, 37. So, you know, I was pretty pretty I was an older parent. What's interesting is that I lost my business a couple years before the kids were born. So mm-hmm. I was trying to figure this out. And then one big thing that happened was as soon as I had kids, I became you know, they always talk about being an entrepreneur, being like a sixty hour a week hustling an entrepreneur. I did the opposite. I became yes. a 25-hour-a-week entrepreneur because I wanted to be there every day for the kids, helping out with my wife. And what I can say is that first kid showed up, second kid showed up two years later, and that was even harder because we had a two-year-old and we had a baby, and so now we're trying to do that. Yes. And I can say those first four or five years of, of my business, you know, I wasn't really growing much, and I dedicated my time to be the best parent I could be, and I don't regret for a minute all the time I spent being there for every single one of their first this and that. And later on, you know, then I, then I focused on the business. And so for me, you know, I could say, well, I could have grown my business and gone like this, but no, uh, I have those years
1: and I'm never going to regret that. And that's why I, I wanted to talk about that because there are many people that are listening now that are leaders or they're doing a side hustle or they have a business and they're at that place of either transitioning away from a full-time job. And then children are obviously involved. And I love that you point that out because, uh, again, we, we see the young hustle culture entrepreneur that's like, you know, hashtag team, no sleep, grind, grind, grind. Right. And, and those people feel like that's what needs to be done. But it shows a pr- people like you and I that they aren't focusing on the right thing. They're trying to do too many things and they're not doing the things that are actually moving the needle. And once you figure out what those things are, if you truly dive into them with purpose, with intention and attention. You can do all the stuff that you need to do and more. There's no reason to feel like you have to continually give that pound of flesh unnecessarily if it's not going to create the kind of returns that we need, especially when we have a family and other priorities that are competing for that attention.
2: Yeah, and I think there's two parts to this. So I always say don't hustle for life, hustle for a life. So What mm-hmm. that means is that you are putting time and energy into creating the life that you want by design, right? That that That's the important piece. And then the second part of that is when we say life, what does that actually mean? What does life mean to you does life mean work does life mean children I mean at the end of the day prioritizing my kids over my my business was my life choice and that's the life I was hustling for because I wanted to really build that up now then it's kid of course that you know and some of us of course don't have the privilege of having the ability and resources to do that stuff, so we had to figure that out but at the end of the day we all value the time spent in loving and caring nurturing and for our kids so I think to me that's a big, that's a big thing. I met another, I met a woman who was, you know, wanting to become a, the principal at her school versus from a, from a vice principal. And it's a lot of work, a lot of energy, but she had young kids. And so, you know, the question is, do you want to, you know, hustle for that, that promotion or do you want to focus on the kids? I mean, here's the thing. Now that my kids are teenagers, I give you the perspective that they don't want you to run on that much. Now it's a good time for me to hustle some there more. There it is. For, yeah. To do the yeah. stuff. When they were younger, no. But now, like, yeah, so you know what? You could be the principal in 10, 15 years. And because the, the the kids are around only for a very short period of time, like, you know, depending on the number of kids, it's between 18 and 25 years. And then you still have another 20 years of your life to live. Uh, and so I, I would I would probably wait on those, some of those things. And so I'm glad I waited on those things. Now I have more time to dedicate to my business because they are now always on our laptops and don't want that around. And that's fine to have more free time to do those things. And I, so my time actually has increased in terms of how much I've done my
1: business. So. You're like, well, I guess I'll go work in my business now since you don't want to talk about yeah, that. Okay. I
2: guess I'll go work <laughs> in my business. <laughs> I guess. Nothing else to do.
1: God. I mean, there's nothing on Netflix. I'll just work on this business and grow it, I guess. So yeah, I love that. And even TED Talks, we've discussed these different things. I did, I did my TED Talk in 2017 and you've done five, but we've seen how TED Talks have, have changed and evolved and almost mean different things now. And there's a lot of people that are trying to hustle to get TED Talks, TEDx Talks, and things like that. For that person, what advice would you give them? I did a podcast on this, which was very much of this idea of why do you want a TEDx Talk? What are you trying to do? If you're just trying to build your brand or something like that, there are other ways to go about it if that's what you're wanting to do. Can you kind of tell us about what got you into the TED arena and how you are able to get multiple ones in such a short amount of time?
2: Yeah. So I think uh, in the initial stages, you know, I had, I saw the power of social media and I remember, I remember I, I was speaking at an event, this is a long time ago, you know, I think 2010 and someone said, Bobby, are you on Twitter? I'm like, oh, I don't want to be on Twitter. Why would I be there? Like I, and then she's like, you know, it's just for, it's just for like, you know, celebrities and and sports figures and politicians. And, then she, and she told me, Bobby, do you have a message for the world? I'm like, yes, I do. I said, well, then you should be on Twitter. So. I went on Twitter, and then when I did my first TEDx talk, I was like, you know, I need to like build something up here. And so I started investing in social media, and on Twitter was the first place where I started to build influence. Uh, I I had about 5,000 followers, and someone said, Bobby, I love what you do. Can you come in and do a a leadership session for us? I'm like, man, I got a gig right on Twitter? That's amazing. And Let let me do more. This is fantastic. And so I invested heavily in Twitter, and I think that by the time I got to 100,000 followers on Twitter, and then I started building up on LinkedIn as well. And that led to lots of, lots of opportunities. And so I can tell you that the, I, I got, uh, what happened was in the first two years, I got four TEDx talks and I got three other invites to TEDx talks, which I declined. Mm-hmm. So I actually was invited seven times to TEDx, but I did four in just two years. And that's mostly because I had a strong brand out there, which is I'm a huge advocate for. People knew who I was, I was putting stuff out there. They knew what they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted me to be at their event. And so that worked really, really well. Now, nowadays, you know, and then the fifth text talk I didn't do until three years later, I think I did the fifth text talk in 2018. I saw uh, an ad, and it's the only one I applied for. The other ones people just uh, you know, asked me, mm-hmm. but I saw that they're doing a theme called Power of Connection, which is the, the hashtag I use on on social media. And then I already had a talk in, in my back pocket I want to talk about, which was uh, about hugs. And I was like, let me just pitch this, and then I did it, and it worked out really well. And they they brought me in the next day, and so you know how uh, I mean, TED talks. I think uh, you know I, there's lots of things to think about it, but number one, I think everyone should realize that they can all do a TED talk because at the end of the day, it's not about being a professional speaker; it's about the human experience, sharing a story, sharing an idea. And every single one of us have done all three of those things. We're all humans. So we've all have we all have stories. We all have ideas we can mm-hmm. share. And so I think that to me is. What people, number one, understand that you know anyone can do a TEDx talk and can deserve to do a TEDx talk. There's nothing, don't think that you can do one. And number two, the reason why it's a good thing to have because it does lots, it has a lot of benefits. You know, it positions you as an authority expert in your field, it's great PR, it shows people you're a good storyteller, it shows people you're a good speaker or a consultant, and it can actually drive a lot of cool things. You might get more speaking gigs, more interviews, a book deal, better content out there. I think there's lots of benefits for doing it. Uh, I like the idea to teach you to be more concise with your storytelling and what you're yeah. trying to share because there's supposed to be short talks. And and now i am putting a lot of my eggs into actually helping people do that. And so what I find is most people, they they do it the wrong way. I mean, they, 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 they have bad ideas, they don't know the right process, or they feel like they don't deserve it or can't do one. Uh, but I would say the number one tip I would tell people is go through your life story. Like, document your life story. Because when you document your life story and you start to see all the, uh, you, you find random stuff you didn't even know about. Mm-hmm. Like the time that I was bullied when I was six years old. with the time that the first time I heard someone share a racist comment to me and call me a slur. These are, these are things that you only remember if you just take the time to go through your life and, and think about what happened, And then what's the lesson? What's the learning? And from that, you can extract a dozen TED Talk ideas just from your story. That to me is a starting point for anybody who wants to do uh,
1: a TEDx talk. And could you expand on that experience that you had at a young age with that that racism?
2: Uh, well, actually, I remember it was uh, I was in elementary school and, and I think I was playing some sort of game like soccer or something, and then uh, and then I bumped into some guy and he fell to the ground and it, it, he actually called me the N word, which is interesting because first off, I'm brown. So, so part of me was laughing. Like you, you get the wrong word, yeah. Uh, but I was like, but well, why would you say that? Like are you trying to make me feel bad. And, and that specific incident, I didn't feel bad at all. I just like, you know, it was just I just thought it was silly. And then, but but the first time it happens, the first time you notice it, you start to notice it more and more. Yes. So then, then later that summer, there was another. One that said, okay, and these guys started calling me the normal racist word they would call me, which is the P word. Uh, because my family's from Pakistan. And I was like, hey, and 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 normally I would just ignore it because I didn't want to like cause any ruffle, ruffles. But I was actually with uh, a couple of cousins who were there, and one of them was a really big, strong guy, and he went up to those guys and just confronted them. He was like, oh my God. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, I was like seven or eight. I was like, Oh my god, what are you doing? Uh but he went, he went up to them and put his, you know, took off sunglasses and right her their face. What did you say? <laughs> and confronted them, and I was like, Oh my God. But I'm glad I did that because it also showed me the importance of standing up to these types of bullies, right? Which I wasn't doing before. I was just kind of ignoring it or laughing off or making a joke of it. But he actually
1: confronted them head on, which I thought was really powerful. Yeah, that taught you to be empowered in the moment as opposed to allowing it to make you shrink back and be lesser.
2: Yeah. And again, like you were saying before about how life has changed. I and mean, even even how we deal with racism has changed since I was a kid to where it is now. You know, uh, initially, when people were, like I'll give you an example. Initially, people were were fine with who uh, from Simpsons being voiced by a white guy. And me personally, the brown guy, I didn't care either. Right. Oh, I do care. But I didn't care for the first 10 years. And then all of a sudden, I started to care. Um, another, another example is the way I say my name, uh, which is, just, I saw an episode with Hasan Minhaj. He, he, he talked about his mom's in the audience. And he, he said, hi, hey, everybody, my name is Hassan Minaj." And he saw the look at his mom's face, and his mom's face was like just really, really solid because he had said both his first name and his last name incorrectly for a westernized audience. Mm-hmm. And my name is Bobby. My original name is Rehan. I became Bobby my whole life when I was one years old, and it's just been part of who I am. So I still identify with it. But I wonder about, you know, what if I had not done that? And then, of course, Omer, my last name is Omer. But everywhere I go, I see it. Uh, I have videos of you saying, "Hey, hey, Bobby Umar here." Blah blah blah. Here's what I want to talk about today. And I don't know why I was doing that. And so I made a conscious effort to stop doing that. So now it's like, mm-hmm. okay, no, it's Omar. It's Omer. It's Omer. Omar. Now I, I understand people can't pronounce it properly, which is fine. I appreciate the effort, but they don't have to say it the right way. So I'm trying. So I'm. So now you know how I'm dealing with my identity. How I'm dealing with the race racism from long ago. It's changed. It's shifted. And as everything has shifted from from the advent of digital, digital, digital media to the advent of post-pandemic to how we are intersectional, I mean, there's just so much stuff that has changed significantly in my lifetime, but also particularly the last like five, five, six years.
1: And do you think that this is something that we can get rid of, or is this just kind of the human condition? There's people that are ignorant, people that don't understand, and people will kind of lash out to that sort of behavior as opposed to trying to understand or trying to see the it's so interesting to me. Everybody says that they want in business, in leadership, they want new ideas. They always claim that they want new ideas, yet they want no no one else outside of what they're accustomed to, to give them perspectives on those ideas, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's there's ignorance, which is something that, you know, uh, none of us know everything. I am of ignorant of certain aspects of car mechanics. <laughs> I am ignorant of certain aspects of how to swim. So that's fine. We are ignorant in certain things. The other aspect is fear, and I think that when people uh, experience things that are different, or they feel out of touch, or they feel behind, or they feel like they uh, are are ignorant, or they feel like they don't have knowledge, there's fear about where they are and who they are and how they stand and how they're going to be, both currently but also in the future. So I think that you know there's this whole thing about fear and ignorance leads to hate and anger, and and it becomes a a fire a fireball effect for that. So I think those are things that are naturally part of the human condition but as humans what are we doing to process those emotions i think the the biggest challenge for a lot of us pandemic for kids but also for adults uh with with social media and the age of disinformation mm-hmm. how do we process our feelings how do we establish critical thinking that in and, and, and will keep us keep us sane i think that you know right. i think we're all i think we're all struggling a little bit about that and i think people don't have the proper tools to process those things and if you you know, getting therapy for me, like when I had therapy. Uh, now I had therapy originally for my binge eating and binge eating disorder and uh, diabetes, but I could tell you it was mind, it was mind blowing it life changing for me because I'm way more zen about things, I'm way more, more contextual about things, I'm way more intersectional about things, uh, and it all, and I start with empathy and everything else flows from, and gratitude and everything else flows from there. Yeah. I. That's and, a lot there. I <laughs> to give you all about no, things. <laughs> no, but I,
1: I, I love that. And that's the truth. And here's the thing. Empathy is, is key. Uh, we've heard about tactical empathy from, you know, um, Never Split the Difference. We've heard about uh, surgical empathy from Dr. Mark Goulston, which I love both of those ideas from his book of, you know, Just Listen. But I think that also people underestimate that empathy towards themselves. I know many leaders that have huge companies, lots of employees, very successful on paper. And they are more than happy to deploy it as a tactic for other people. Yet the person that may need it the most may be them. They may give it to their family, but then when it comes yeah. to them, they're like, I don't need this. And I think that they're really missing an opportunity for growth there in many in many places.
2: Yeah, I find that it's a very fascinating concept of those who are coaching others, but are not coachable themselves. Uh, and I, I find it's it's actually ironic and a little bit hypocritical, but it, it happens right. quite more frequent than we realize. And uh, being able to, you know, work on ourselves to be more open, to be coachable, to uh, understand we're not perfect and we have to evolve and grow. I mean, I think that that's actually the, one of the big things I've learned in the last five, six years in terms of involving myself and changing how I am and and taking things what are because a lot of people say, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and the perfect example for me was um, I'm a natural teddy bear hugger kind of guy. I hug everyone. Everyone loves my hugs and, you know, warm, friendly. Uh, but. After the Me Too movement, I remember I went to an event and I met somebody that I know for years. and like, dude, I was so happy to say, oh, my God. And I, and I remember I hugged her. And I was like, and afterwards, I was like, oh, you know what? I shouldn't I shouldn't do that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I felt the trust that she did was fine with it. And she was. Right, right. But I was like, you know what? I need to stop this. So I now, at this point, I will never, ever initiate a hug with a woman. I will let them do it. And then I'll totally go for it. But I just don't do it. It feels unnatural in the beginning but after right. a while it just becomes part of your practice and so now it's just a practice that i have and same with empathy you can practice empathy you can you get better at it do you exercise your heart muscle and it gets better and better with with experience but that was a big shift for me that i had to change about myself and uh, i think that i
1: had to be open to that idea and now you know now it's it's part of who i am too yeah and it's it's so key because as you say we don't know what that person's going through we don't know where they are right so they may need it but yet they may be afraid to allow it to happen. And again, we're not trying to force this on anybody because I'm very much the same way I'm a hugger as well. Having said that, I, I had to learn the same way you did even before the Me Too movement. There's some people that enjoy that, or even there's times when that person enjoys it, but there may be times when they're going through something, or there's times when, yeah. or even with kids, yeah. sometimes you're, I've got a 21 year old stepdaughter, and uh, when she wants to be around me, you know she's like a, like a feline. She wants to just lay on me. She wants me to bring my fingers through her hair. She wants to just lay on me. And then there's times when she's like, comes up and won't even give me a hug. And I used to take it personal. I'm like, you know, I thought we were just hugging her. I thought we said we loved each other all the time and we do, but it comes back to where she is. And I got to respect that. Not that it's a boundary, but it's just like, I don't, it's not all about me. I don't have to take it personally because you might not I'm, to think I'm about
2: feeling that now, brother, with my third female daughter, man. It's like, oh, <laughs> God. You. Like, why won't you hug me? Oh, my God. And <laughs> it'll yeah, I'm learning that's that. Oh, boy, it's a tough lesson. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs>
1: from yeah. your old kids, definitely a tough lesson. Exactly. And that's, that's, like you say, that's the one that we learn the most of the, the information from so many times. And when it comes to leadership, you're a tremendous thought leader. Is there a lesson or an understanding about leadership that you have that, May seem counterintuitive to most people, or may seem as if only you understand how important it is compared to the general consensus. Because in leadership, we see a lot of bad information, mediocre information, disinformation, frankly, when it comes to this.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I look at leadership in lots of different uh, ways, different angles. I mean, I always talk about leadership being a way to evolve or grow as a person. Leadership is also about influence. What are you doing to influence the world? Things like that. Uh, leadership is also about empathy and understanding people, and building those connections with communities. But in terms of something that's a little bit different, I would say, particularly in today's world, the accountability in acknowledging a mistake, I think, is really, really huge. A lot of people are not willing to do that; they're not willing to say, "Yeah, like this." This whole idea concept of doubling down, particularly on a mistake, is absolutely mind-boggling. It's if you are wrong and you know you're the strategy should be to own it and learn from it, grow from it, and acknowledge it, then as opposed to doubling down on that. And I think it's such a it's such a, such a wrong, toxic way to be. So, so for me, acknowledging my mistakes. So, apologizing to my teens when I do something wrong as a dad. Apologizing to my clients if I screwed something up, um, and just taking ownership of those things. Uh, and especially when it comes to like you know learning and doing things a different way. Like you know this is the way I used to do it. Now I'm going to do it this way. I acknowledge that that was a mistake and now I'm gonna do it this way. But I think the the thing that I don't see leaders do enough is say point blank, you are right, I am wrong, I apologize for what I did say or believe, and here's how I'm gonna change and do it better. To me, that is a fantastic example of leadership that covers the things I talked about, which is you know branding, integrity, honesty, Evolving, learning, growing as a person, all those things to me are very powerful. So, if you're going to be a really good leader out there, accountability and apologize
1: for mistakes you make. Yeah. And to me, leadership, all leadership starts with self leadership. And so, as you say, if we don't have that humility within ourselves, it's impossible to really do it, especially when the chips are down. Like we might be able to do it when it's easy. It's easy to lead when everything is going beautifully, but when we need leadership the most is when it's the most difficult. Yep. No, no, I, I
2: agree, and uh, you know, there's people out there who you know inspire us because they're they're doing leadership in very difficult circumstances, and it's you know, and there's leadership everywhere. It's, it's it's even all the small things. I mean, there's some people are doing things for climate change, but other people are doing things in their own community. Uh, and the other thing about leadership too is that uh, I often get because I'm in uh, because I'm seen as an influencer and and whatnot out there. I get called to like, Bobby, wh- why don't you say much about you know topic X? I'm like, look, here's the thing: if I had a million dollars. Should I give a dollar to one million charities, or should I give a hundred thousand dollars to ten charities? I cannot talk about everything now I'm definitely really passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm passionate about parenting my kids. I'm passionate about certain types of politics. I'm passionate about climate change, but they all have different levels within me and there's other things that I don't necessarily talk about all the time. you know why aren't you talking about the scandal in West Virginia about the you know that that trucker union you know, like dude, like I can't talk about everything little big out there uh, i feel bad for the truckers if they're having if they're struggling but like i just can't you know do everything so
1: i think it's a part to be mindful of you know where you can have impact and where you you spread yourself too thin. yeah and in today's society especially with the connection of everything we are not designed as human beings to be able to be aware of everything that happens in real time as it's happening um yep. a- as you say if if we're trying to spare ourselves so then we can't do anything well I always tell my clients, if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. So as you say, this is my area of expertise. This is what I really know. There's two or three things. I, I lean into those things. And much like yourself, once we master this or we get closer to getting better in the practice of it, we start to see that way broadly through everything, whether it be a very Zen concept, philosophically stoic, just the capacity to have empathy, all these things very much dovetail into something that's pragmatic if we're willing to apply it especially when it's the most difficult yeah no totally agree. there's so much there as a speaker you and i and that's why i love ted talks that the keynote joke is it's easier to find somebody to give an hour keynote than a 10 minute because a lot of speakers like to bloviate they like to hear themselves talk perhaps or the real one is They don't want to do the work necessary to get it down to this amount of time. They like to go in there and say, I want to go up there and wing it. I'm going to tell this. I'm going to say this and do this. But as a speaker, as as Bobby understands for sure, if you are hired by somebody to give a keynote, they want you to say, what are you going to tell us about? How long will it be? Will there be enough time for Q&A? And if you're the person that goes up there and you go way over on your time or you go way under on your time. That's not what a professional speaker does. You're not up there just trying to say, it's about me. We are vessels. Our goal is to serve. And we have information that we're trying to get people in a way that they are going to be able to receive it, meet the person where they are, meet the, the listener to where they are. So I think that it's interesting to see how people, oh, I'm just going go up there and wing it. It's like, well, that shows me that they're afraid to do the work. They're afraid to really know what they want to talk about. What would you say is the biggest Mistake that you see most people do when they're speaking, whether it be a presentation for their company or uh, a TEDx in front of ten thousand people. Hmm. Question.
2: Um, well, I think that uh, I think the number one mistake that people make when they do a, any sort of presentation, TED talk, or a delivery presentation, and not in their audience. Right? They hmm. they basically design or create something that doesn't really resonate with the audience, and so now you're basically speaking to twenty percent versus speaking to the eighty percent. And That uh, definitely takes with the impact of the talk. It uh, takes with the impact from the event, from the organizer's perspective, and you know it, it ends up being not uh, not a win win, which is what you want to do. So I think you know, t- taking care of your audience, make sure you know who they are, because you know it, it varies. You know, like I've had I've had different types of audiences. And in fact, the most terrifying audience I ever had was grades six, seven, and eight. <laughs> and <it> was like, <laughs> I was like, I was terrified. I was like, oh god, I'm not cool. What do I say to these people? Right. And uh, and uh, I. I I threw in a whole bunch of like references to like Harry Potter and and Toy Story, Pixar and Star Wars to try to explain the concepts I want to do. And I I think it went over well, but man, I was terrified, but I had to find a way to relate to them versus like, Mm -hmm. say, you know, a room full of CEOs uh, or a room full of women or youth or whatever it might be. And so I think that that's probably the the biggest thing that uh, people do wrong. And then I think the other big thing that they do wrong is um, brag about themselves a bit too much. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with me talking about on stage about the fact that I have five TEDx talks or you know, Inc. magazine, or all. That. But you know, that's got to be super brief, like quick intro. Or I'd rather have someone else introduce him, introduce me, and Absolutely. say that. And then I rarely, and, uh, and I don't bring it up. And I think uh, for me, that that's another another big mistake that a lot of, a lot of people do. And then I think the third one uh, is how they, the the timing and the flow of how they talk. My big be believer in structuring uh, things with a kind of an arc. Uh, story arc. I will but also I'll mention something, then I'll mention it again, then I'll bring it back at the very end. And the way I way I structure my talks is really big on interact. I'm big on interaction with the audience. Ask some questions. Anticipate what they're going to think, which they love because when That's I right. have when I have a slide, that, here's here's what we discussed. And they're like, whoa, how'd you call that? Well, because I've done my research, I know my audience. And so what I do is I go in there and I say, Here, "What are your biggest challenges about topic X?" And I say, "Here's what some of you are saying on another slide." And I'm like, wow, Bobby just garbled <laughs> ones that we just talked about it. I, because I know what you're gonna say and then and then the other end, the other thing I do in my talks at the very end, you know, i I always leave room for Q and a. really mm-hmm. really big on that because some of the best nuggets of a talk come from the end Q yes. and a. it's in ginks, people just share some questions and that, that' nugget that everyone's thinking. That is so key to having a very successful talk.
1: It absolutely is. And um I did my first book in twenty eighteen and I'm finishing my second one now. And I remember when I started getting traction, if I listened to a lot of people, I would have gone a lot of different directions. And almost like what you were saying before, where I wouldn't have known what to do. Having said that, doing as many keynotes as I could, helping as many companies as I could, getting that that QA, that's where the gold was. And that showed yep. me what am I not showing them? What am I? I thought that I covered this. I didn't cover it well enough or I inferred this I need to be much more specific with this because this is a big piece that people are missing you were talking about knowing our audience I had a keynote in 2019 and I I always make sure I speak to the the organizer the the person that's doing it and I make sure that we're a good fit and I make sure that yep. it's who we want and when I got there the audience I literally saw people within the first 2 2 minutes of my opening they were shaking their heads no and they're on the front row and it's like this may be a tough keynote now the beautiful thing was I was able to bring it back around once they saw the depth of what I was trying to bring but when you just see a white male veteran with a shaved head sometimes people get this certain concept about what I'm going to talk about and I'm going to just go up there and yell and scream and have people do burpees in the audience it's like that's not what it's about but at the same time being able to see that and then as a as a speaker right we know what we're going to talk about. We have slides, but at the same time, we also have to build in that wiggle room, that capacity to say, you know what, maybe I'm going to pause here. Maybe I'm going to make sure I really emphasize this this component, and that way, once they're there, I can still think on my feet, still be a professional, and still deliver something that is edifying for everyone involved. You know,
2: you know what's interesting? Another thing, another shit that's changed that uh, you know, in the early days, you know, I've done over a thousand keynotes across four continents over the last twenty years, and but it's changed, you know. Like the the one hour keynote is not something that people usually want now. It's usually thirty minutes or less. Yes, and so that's one thing. But the other thing that's happened is I used to I used to give a lot of information and then put a lot of content. Now I'm like completely. Doing way less. So what I what I now I I keep it very very simple. What's the one thing you want to get from this talk when I talk to organizers? Yes. And then I throw in a lot of uh, really like stories. Like you know, okay, let me share. Let me share a story about this concept. Let me share a story about this concept. Versus you know, here are my five tips for this. My seven tips for this. My three tips for this. Uh, less content, more storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, shorter shorter keynotes. It's a it's a it's certainly a big shift now, and uh, I think people's attention spans are are everywhere, and so now we have to we have to evolve with the way the the world is in terms of how we deliver these things. So that's a big
1: shift for me as well. Yeah, and as you were saying, if I just give all kinds of content, they're not sure what to to focus on. Right. But if I focus on one or two things and they they dovetail, it helps them. And we also understand that quality creates quantity all its own if we're willing to do it in a way that's very serving to the audience. There are so many people that I see now that are successful as entrepreneurs and leaders. And I've never met one of them that did not have some sort of adversity or hardship in their lives. You touched earlier about your your eating and your your battling with with some of these demons. Can you open up about what that was was like for you and how you were able to overcome it? And then were there any gifts within that adversity once you were able to, to get beyond it and look back in hindsight?
2: Yeah, so I've struggled with my weight my whole life. Starting from like when I was, uh, I guess, 12, 13 years old. And, um, you know, in the last, uh, I became diabetic in 2006. Um, and then from then got diagnosed with uh, binge eating disorder and then trying to deal with the binge eating. Um, I'm not going to lie, it's been a struggle. I mean, I've had good and bad, bad times. I mean, pre pandemic, I was doing quite well. You know, I had seven months of fantastic, I lost 40 pounds. And the pandemic happened. Just everything just fell apart. Uh, just couldn't keep up. The kids were little. We were home all the time. We had no dishwasher. I just spent all my time cooking, doing dishes, trying to save my businesses, and of course that that meant, that led to lots of takeout, you know, and, and things like that. And so uh, that was a struggle to to get back to get that momentum back again. What I can tell you that it, it it's it's hard to explain because it definitely it's it's been a battle because sometimes people don't even know. Like uh, a good example was I, I do the keynote in our nation's capital, Ottawa, Canada. And it was exciting to be there. I had a great talk. I had a great time. But a lot of people don't know. So I know I'll share. On, so, I mean, hey, here's me in the nation's capital. Here's, here's the problem buildings. And, hey, here's my keynote. Here's some excerpts of them, them doing networking events and all that kind of stuff. But what no one knows is the night before, I had a binge. Mm-hmm. And it was a severe binge. So typically, I have three types of binges. There's the quasi-binge, which is, you know, just like, oh, it's pretty bad. Then there's the moderate binge where, okay, you know what, this is like really, uh, you definitely overate and you're going to you're going to have a really rough night uh, sleeping. And then there's a severe binge where basically you're either going to throw up or you're going to just, you can't sleep or you have major gastro mm-hmm. problems and it's just really bad. So I had a severe binge that night. And, um, you know, I was in the bathroom all night. And, you know, I don't, next day I delivered the keynote with, with excellence as I, as I want to, but um, it impacts you. I mean, the the fear of having a binge is everywhere for me. Uh, especially when I'm on my own, that's where it becomes the when I'm on my own. Like, well, one of my family's here; it's easier. Like, you know, but when I'm on my own, it's really hard. Um, th- therapy and counseling was really helpful uh, to help me have process to, to navigate. One of the biggest insights I had about binge eating was that for years I tried to eliminate binge eating from my life what I've now learned is that it's always going to be there. So I have to accept that it's binge eating exists and I will have binges. The question is, how do I navigate the binges? So there's three things I do. Number one, try and navigate the severity of the binge so that instead of having severe binges, which are rare, to have more of the quasi binges and modern binges versus the severe binges. So the one in Ottawa that I had, this was, this was back in October, uh, that was the first severe binge I'd had in probably maybe six months to a year. So they weren't they weren't as common. The second piece is the frequency between the binges. So like how often am I binging, you know, once a, once a month or once a week or once a day like that, that frequency piece. And the third piece is getting back to normal afterwards. So if you do have a binge, what happens is you may have a series of binges for the next several days, or you get back on track that, that evening and have a salad and you're back on track, or it might take a couple of days or it might take a couple of weeks. And so I try to manage those three things as best I can. And then um, the hardest part is the impact on my work and my family because I know that uh, I worry that it's going to impact my my work, I was worried about the keynote going well, that that next day after I had it, I worry about how it's gonna affect me with the kids, uh, you know, and then my wife, am I going to be in a bad mood, or I'm be sullen or whatever it might be, because it typically I typically quiet down. So you know, it's always there, Marcus. Uh, it's just, but I'm aware of it. I'm constantly thinking about it. I mean, even right now, as we're heading towards you know the holiday season, I'm thinking about, okay, you know, what, am I, what You know, what are what's my stomach telling me? What am I trying to do? And so, it's a constant navigation. But I can tell you that it's certainly having the therapy, having the tools, and having the mindset exercises to navigate this has has been is great. And I'm at the point where And I'm sorry if I'm not being articulate on this. Now is a point where I feel like uh, uh, I have almost where I feel in control. One of the hardest parts of it was feeling zero control of my life, zero control of what what's going on with me, health wise. But now I feel like there's some control, not total control, but some control. Supplements where I feel like I pretty much can control. Other times, maybe not so much, but at least I I have some level of control. And I cannot tell you how important it is. To go from feeling completely out of control to having a semblance of some, albeit inconsistent control, but some control.
1: It is a key change. Thank you for being so transparent about that. It, And I think that anybody that's dealing with anything where they feel like they're the victim of it, where they have no control, like you say, it just feels so disempowering. It feels like, how am I ever going to get through this? Yep. It doesn't feel like you're living, you're just existing. But yet, as you were saying, very much this is an idea of saying, listen, I'm not trying to bridle this thing and control it. I'm saying that I'm not going to allow it to completely control me. And what does that do? Um, I see people either go through a downward spiral that's negative and they go down, or I see people that use artificial positivity on the far end of the spectrum, and those things are not sustainable and we don't believe them. But if we can say, listen, let's just get back to neutral. Let's let's get back to this place where this is level ground. The world's not falling apart. This happened. It wasn't great. I understand that. Now, what am I going to do moving forward? And then how can I get in front of this either in the future or as you say, having a plan when it happens as opposed to hoping that it doesn't happen? Because when we fear that it doesn't, when we don't have the plan, that's what gets us. If I'm driving with you in Canada and we don't have a spare tire, what are we always worried about? Oh, we're going to have a flat tire because we're not prepared, (laughs) right? But when we have a plan, it's like it's not nearly as devastating.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I think having and knowing that I have a plan, and have, have tools to, at my disposal to help me, knowing that I have a support network. These are all things that uh, I'll
1: be able to leverage if it happens again. Absolutely. And tell us about your book and what was the the motivation behind that? And you've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback with it.
2: Well, I mean, uh, you know, back in the early days of speaking, I mean, they're like, you know, you got to have a book, got to have a book. I'm like, okay, fine. I, I personally believe that you don't necessarily have to have a book. Correct. Um, but I think that having the book at the time was good. So, you know, I wrote on how to network anywhere, anytime with anyone, mm-hmm. uh, self-published. Afterwards, I ended up writing another book, which was a pub- through a publisher to, for GMAT, because I was a GMAT teacher. And I actually wow. wrote a book on how to actually write the GMAT, co-author with another person. So that became another book that I did. But, uh, you know, I, I believe a, G, uh, a book or a TEDx talk or even a program where people have actually gone through it and got something out of it. These are all different ways to build your thought leadership to showcase your expertise. Now, luckily, I have all three, so I can use all three to show my gift. But, you know, but each of them are good assets, right? So if you don't have a book, you can still have a TEDx talk or a program. So, you know, I have a personal brand program. People have gone through it. I have testimonials. So now having that program and having testimonials, people will now see me as a personal branding expert. If I do a TEDx talk on that, they'll see me as a personal brand expert. Now, I haven't written a book on personal branding, but I have those two things that showcase my expertise in those areas, as well as being quoted on stuff or having meeting appearance, things like that. So, uh, you know, the the book process, you have to play to your strengths, right? So, you know, do I want to spend all my time and energy writing? No. I'd much rather have a ghostwriter, like, interview me and put something together that's based on my words or my like... I think someone could just take my thousands of videos out there and just make a book out of it and say, "Yeah, about let's publish this." Yes, please, just do that. I mean, now AI who knows I probably take all that stuff mm-hmm. and put a book together, and, and that's yep. fine. For me, you know, I, I like making videos, so for me, it's very easy to make a video, whether it's a long video or a short video. Share share my knowledge that way, and thankfully, with things like TikTok and Instagram and, and videos out there, I'm able to you know get my message out there and, and talk to folks.
1: And that's the key. I um I was very much an old school guy where it was like. I wrote the book, and then if people didn't read the book, because people kept asking me for Audible, and I was like, "No, nah, I'm not doing that. If you're not going to read my book with your hands and and highlight it, then I don't want right. you to have it." But that was me. That was my ego. That was my <laughs> limitation. And then when I finally shut up and sat down and did the Audible magically all of a sudden it started doing incredible and guess what the people that got the audible they bought the book as well so i was really shooting myself in the foot we had to meet people where they are Um, the average commute in the united states is less than half an hour so understanding that we can serve them like you said with our content with our whether it be a book whether it be audible whether it be a podcast whether it be a person like you taking the time to give us your valuable and pragmatic wisdom this is what we should be doing. It's about the quality of what we put into ourselves, as opposed to. And, and and you bring a good point, which is you know as much as I'm a speaker and therefore very visual
2: and video based, audio is man fantastic. Uh, so you know I I I I got into clubhouse during those days, and now I do mm-hmm. link to the audio on Twitter Spaces, and audio rooms are fantastic. I find that uh, it's a it's a new, it's a new uh, era because being able to do an audio room. And have an audio information it's very easily digestible. Mm-hmm. One thing I like about having an audio room, too, is that people come on stage with me. So instead of a podcast where it's just me pushing it out, or actually me pushing it out, in an audio room, they come on stage with me and we talk to each other. And I can tell you, the, the authentic audible voice and the deeper connection you build with an audio room is far more powerful than any video I've ever put out there or any live stream I've done. So uh, there's definitely power there. People ask me, Bobby, why don't you do a, a podcast? Well, I've already been on 150 podcasts, so I think I have a good library there. I, you know, for me, and I have my and my live streams are technically audio rooms themselves. So, and actually, YouTube allows me to actually now create a podcast through my all my videos. So that's kind of what I've done. Fine with that, but uh, definitely continue to do the audio rooms because I I see them as a key part of building that connection because it's it goes faster in an audio room than any other place I've ever seen. That that's why audio audios are social audio is so good
1: absolutely. And I've
2: changed. So I didn't have to cheat. I've evolved to, to incorporate that as part of my,
1: what I do. And I want everybody to listen to what he's saying. He didn't change his message. He didn't change what he was saying. He still stayed authentic to who he is and what he's giving. He just found the medium that was the best fit for him right. and gave him the best traction. So if you get, if you're an author, you're like, I just want to write, go ahead, but make sure you bleed onto that page. If you're speaking, be present, give them all the value that you can. And if you're going to be a person speaking on stage, make sure you know your audience. Don't brag about yourself. Don't get in a hurry. Tell them a great story. Facts tell, stories sell. So if you want to learn more about that, where can we learn more about you? How can we, I mean, LinkedIn is tremendous. Twitter is tremendous. Where can we get more of your programs and things like that to learn about what you're all about, Bobby?
2: Yeah, I think for the most part, I mean, uh, my website's rayallen That's the main one, but I also again share everything on LinkedIn. So on my LinkedIn profile, you see all the things that I talk about, whether it's the TEDx stuff, the Leadership Branding Club that I run. So all these different things that I'm doing. But you know, I'm quite prevalent on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn are my my big three social medias. I am on all the other ones as well, YouTube, TikTok, you name it. But I'd say that's the big three, and then my website is the main one. So feel free to ping me or follow me or see what I'm up to, and I'm happy to. Uh, uh, Respond. It's one, one of my brands. I'm quite responsive. So feel free to reach out anytime.
1: Absolutely. Bobby Umer, thank you so much for everything that you do, for your work. And uh, I appreciate everything you're up to right now. Thank you for serving the
0: world with your message. Thank you, Marcus. really is interested. I love saying that. Just saying. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba.